Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're discussing a momentous development in the world of international trade. The announcement that a deal's been struck to form a Trans-Pacific Partnership, a free trade deal that includes 12 countries, including the US and Japan, which collectively account for about 40% of world trade. The TPP potentially has big economic and political implications, and to discuss them I'm joined on the line by our world trade editor, Sean Donnan, and in Washington, our diplomatic editor, Jeff Dyer. Sean, first of all, how big a deal is this economically? How much could it do? I think there's a very simple response to that, and that is this is the biggest trade deal that anyone has managed to get to the stage to complete negotiations on in 20-plus years since the Uruguay round of the mid-'90s. How big is it economically? It is something that we're going to test over time, but clearly there are significant commercial reasons to do this. You're linking up two of the three biggest economies in the U.S. and Japan, two of three of the biggest economies in the world. You're easing the flows of trade between them. The agricultural lobby in here in the U.S. is hugely excited about the opening up of the Japanese market and a big market for them. The Japanese car industry is hugely excited about some more opening up of the U.S. market, a big market for them. So there's a real, there's a fill-up there. Also, you're seeing, I'm in Lima, Peru, for the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. And here, it's one of the things that people are really buzzing about. We're in a slow growth environment in the world. And Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF and others, have pointed to this as the type of thing we need in the world to try and get growth going again. Sounds exciting. Let me just put a couple of skeptical points to you. The first is China. China isn't a a member of this deal, and I'll talk to Jeff in a while about the political implications of that. But economically, does it make sense to have a trans-Pacific deal that doesn't include China when China is the biggest trading partner of most of the countries that are signing this TPP? And also some say, well, you know, the level of tariffs is already pretty low, so it's not going to do that much. Could you respond to those points? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's one of the huge questions over this. I mean, this is also where a kind of geoeconomics and geopolitics intersect. The Obama administration's argument for this is we needed to do something to push the case of trade liberalization in the world because nothing was happening. The Doha round's been stalled for 14 years. We needed to find some way to unlock things. And the way to do that is to do it with a sort of coalition of the willing in the world of trade. And right now, China is more of an opponent than a member of a coalition of the willing for the U.S. administration when it comes to setting these rules. At some point, China may well be included in the TPP. This is also something that's built for expansion. You already have countries like South Korea, Colombia here in Latin America, Taiwan, Philippines talking about joining the TPP at some point. But this isn't a purely economic project. This is also about setting up a rival economic bloc to China's. And Jeff, of course, that has enormous political implications. And from what I can gather, the whole tenor of 
debate in Washington at the moment about China over the past year has been a little bit more hostile, a little bit more overt about efforts to push back at China. So how much of this is, in fact, political in intent? It's very much going to be the big part of the political argument the administration is going to now use to sell the deal because there is so much resistance particularly from the left, but also in some parts of the Republican Party, to the agreement. So the China geopolitics part of this is going to be the key selling point. And it is a big part of the underlying thinking behind the deal. I mean, the idea here is the U.S. wants to show that it's still the driving force in economic trade integration around the world, that it's still shaping trade integration, even though, as Sean was saying, the WTO process has kind of run aground. And so the administration would say... Asia is going to integrate more over the coming decades and it's either going to be done from a kind of US model or a Chinese model. And the US model is to have it much more about kind of trans-Pacific trade integration and less about Asia integrating within itself and maybe it's becoming slightly more closed off, which could happen if China was the driving force. And it's a bunch of rules that are much more favourable to multinational-type companies than they are to, say, Chinese state-owned companies. It's a very different type of rules and regulations that you would see if it was a Chinese-led trade integration. And then more broadly, the US is trying to show here that, you know, its famous pivot to Asia, where it's trying to show that Asia is very much at the forefront of its foreign policy, that the US has, has an economic agenda for Asia that's not just a country with a few aircraft carriers that will come in and then sort out things whenever there's a crisis. It's trying to show, trying to demonstrate to the region that it sees its economic future as being very much linked to the prosperity of Asia. So those are the kind of big geopolitical arguments that are driving this, how much of the administration will, will mobilise now. Now, Jeff, you're a former Beijing correspondent before you were in Washington. How do you think the Chinese will be viewing this? A couple of years ago, the Chinese were very hostile to the idea of TPP. You would occasionally hear officials say things like, this is economic containment. This is just the flip side of the US military strategy. They're just trying to encircle us and cut us out. But the Chinese rhetoric has really changed a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, you have a different administration now in China. They have their own very aggressive economic reform program. They're trying to reshape the Chinese economy, take it away from heavy industry and more towards services, try to open up a bit, trying to liberalize, trying to make the market more important. And so you see Chinese leaders talking a bit more favorably about TPP and seeing it maybe as a way, not necessarily to join now, but using this process as a way of trying to kind of exert pressure on the Chinese system to push through some of these reforms, kind of in the same way as they used WTO entry a decade ago to push through a previous generation of economic reforms. So they're much less hostile towards TPP than they were a while ago. That doesn't mean to say they're going to join immediately, but they're not aggressively lobbying against it. And Sean, I mean, we mentioned earlier that the tariffs already are quite low, apart from specific areas you mentioned, such as agriculture. But I gather that a lot of what the TPP is doing is about not so much trade tariffs as about regulation. That's exactly right. But it's also, as Jeff just said there, about getting a U.S. model or a U.S. set of rules for trade around the Pacific and kind of embedding that there. So the TPP itself is actually 2930 chapters that lay out rules for things like the behavior of state-owned enterprises, that lay out rules on intellectual property, on investment, on labor practices, on the environment, all of which are enforceable. And you can lose the benefits, kind of the economic benefits, the market access, reduction of tariffs side of things, if you don't abide by those rules. So it's not a classic trade agreement. Uh, The administration often talks about it as a next generation or 21st century trade agreement. Um, And it is to a certain extent, because it is much more about embedding these rules and kind of locking that in than the classic sort of line by line tariff reduction or haggling over tariffs that you would normally see. 
And how much trade diversion might it do? I mean, we talked earlier about how China is the manufacturing hub for the Pacific. Is this a threat to Chinese manufacturing industry? You said that countries that violate TPP will lose market access. Well, presumably China doesn't have the market access involved in TPP in the first place. Yes, clearly there is going to be a, a market trade diversion impact both for China, but also for the European Union. You've got to remember that they're not included in this either. And this really does kind of shadow their economic relations or trade relations with Japan and w- with the U.S., so both countries they're now having negotiations with. But there's something also inter- very interesting happening already in Asia. And we're seeing in places like Vietnam, actually, Chinese companies set up operations in Vietnam to take advantage of the TPP, particularly in the textiles industry. So, you know, China is in theory left out of this thing, but its business sector is pretty nimble and shown that over the last couple of decades. And they're already starting to find ways to take advantage. And Jeff, I mean, we're talking a bit like this is a done deal, but of course, it's just agreed in outline. It now has to pass politically in Washington and Tokyo and so on. What's the chances do you think that it'll actually not get a cent in Congress or elsewhere? Well, in Washington, this is anything but a done deal. I mean, some people might think that the big political fight was earlier this year when the president was trying to get fast-track negotiating authority, which he eventually won after a very painful political battle. But it's going to be, to get this passed through Congress, it's going to be the same. It's going to be a very, very tricky, difficult battle. The initial reaction from senior Republicans in Congress this week has been very tepid. Uh, Orrin Hatch, the head of the Senate Finance Committee through which this deal will have to go, said that U.S. negotiators have come up woefully short. And the the underlying politics of this are, you know, this is a Democratic president who really doesn't like Congress, and Congress really don't like him, or the Republicans in Congress don't like him. But on this particular issue, he has relied on Republican support. So it's a very fragile alliance that he's trying to reconstruct again to get this through. And then further than that, in the background, you have the election campaign, which is gathering pace every week. And the two, what we might call the populist candidates, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, have done incredibly well in recent months and are still doing well are very much against this. Bernie Sanders, the Democrat, has come out and called this a disastrous deal. Donald Trump, who's leading on the Republican side, is framing this as Obama trade, trying to rally Republicans against this in the same way that they rallied against Obamacare, the health care reform. So sitting here now, a couple of days after the deal was struck, one can't say with any certainty as to when and how this actually will get through Congress. It's going to be a very difficult process. Okay, and uh, Sean, just a final word from you. Do you think it will get done eventually? I think it will get done eventually, but I think there's a very real possibility that uh, it doesn't make its way through Congress until the next administration, until after the presidential elections later this year, and a new administration takes charge in January 2017. And also, you've got to remember that the U.S. is just one component. There's 12 countries involved in this. Canada, they've had elections in a couple of weeks where this has been a huge topic of debate. Australia, it's a huge topic of debate. New Zealand, it's a huge topic of debate. In Japan, Shinzo Abe has really taken on some powerful factions in the ruling LDP to try and push this and get it through. It's certainly not a done deal in Washington, but it's not a done deal in a lot of other countries as well. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks very much to Sean Donnan in Lima, to Jeff Dyer in Washington. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.